0: Well, greetings from Newport News. It's good to be back here with you again, and it's always a joy to come up here and see what instruments you're going to pull out next. I appreciate the, I appreciate the, uh, the banjo and the ukulele it was a nice that was beautiful, by the way. Um, and uh, it, it does my South Carolina heart good to hear the song of the, the instrument of my native land, the banjo. Uh, so thank you for that warm greeting. I appreciate it. Um, If you don't know me, my name's Dave Latham. I'm the RUF campus minister at CNU. We've been here a year. And my wife, uh, Rebecca, and our two kids are down in Newport News. Uh, We didn't want to bring them up here and unleash them upon you. We have a a three-year-old son named Stokes, and we have an almost four-month-old daughter named Ellie. Um, And we have just loved them, and we're enjoying our summer. And and one of the great privileges of of my summer is I get to come and preach and hang out with y'all, so thank you. Um, and uh, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 130, if you have your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, whatever translation you have is great and fine, but I'll be reading from the ESV. And I think it's, it's been great as we've progressed along, if you haven't noticed as the service has progressed, Psalm 130 has basically kind of just been at the heart. We sung it, that song from the depths of woe, that's basically Psalm 130, set to music. Uh, for kind of the opening call to worship part, we read responsively Psalm 130. A lot of what we've been doing uh, this morning revolves around the psalm purposefully, um, and I hope, I hope uh, you're encouraged by this psalm. I really believe that the Lord has a word for us this morning. I've had a great time preparing this sermon, and can't wait to just unpack it with you. Uh, let's give attention to the reading of God's word from Psalm 130. We're going to read all eight verses. And let us be reminded this morning, this is not just some old historic book or some good moral words that we should live by. This is the very word of God. And we'd be very wise if we listened to it this morning. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful that you draw near to needy sinners. And that you do not turn a deaf ear to us, but that you have stooped low in Christ to meet us and to redeem us. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you, Lord, that... This book that we hold in our hands, we can find ourselves in it because our emotions are there. And we feel the cries of the psalmist. And Lord, we also take great comfort in the fact that you meet us in the midst of our anguish and sorrow. And you remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Remove distractions from our hearts this morning that we may come face to face with you and that our lives may be changed, not by anything that I've said, but simply by the work of your spirit. And we ask these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2004, my wife and I, we were living at Camp Greystone in Tuxedo, North Carolina. That's where we met. That's where we got married. That's where we lived for a long time. Camp was kind of the nucleus of, of us. Um, and in 2004, Hurricane Ivan swept through the southeast. You may, have, you may remember Ivan coming through. And while we were living at the camp, we lived on the camp property, and we had this small little house that was surrounded by these huge hemlock trees. They were 50 feet, maybe taller, I mean, trunks this big. I mean, they were huge trees. And what happened is the hurricane hit and kind of swept up through the coast, and us living in the mountains got just a ton of rain and wind The most intense rain hit during the night. There were 50 to 60 mile per hour kind of sustained winds throughout the night with 80 mile per hour gusts. Six to eight inches of rain fell overnight, and in the upper elevations up towards Asheville, there was close to 10 to 12 inches overnight in just a few hours. It was an unbelievable amount of rain. And my wife, who used to be a geologist, worked for... Uh, worked up in Asheville, and there was this huge landslide that happened up in Asheville because of the intense amount of rain that came through. It was a brutal storm to hit up in the mountains. I mean, needless to say, we did not sleep a wink. All we could hear was the howling wind and the rain, and we hoped that one of those hemlock trees wouldn't come crashing through our house. I mean, that's that, we, we could not sleep at all. Morning could not arrive soon enough. We just waited and waited, hearing the rain pounding up against the window. When is the sun going to rise? Please, Lord, don't send one of these hemlock trees through our house. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe you've been on a camping trip where a storm has hit during the night, and you've, you remember that it's really just you and a small piece of nylon that separates you from the outside world. Maybe you've been here when a hurricane has hit, or or a, uh, a brutal storm comes through and you see the trees in your backyard swaying. Maybe you've had one of those long nights where you just waited for the morning to come. You had an anxious, long night that left you longing for the dawn. There's a TV show that I love. It's the reason I have a DVR. It's called Deadliest Catch. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the Discovery Channel. I love that show. It's Alaskan crab fishing. These guys are absolutely insane. It is the deadliest job in the world. And these guys are up fishing up near Russia and Alaska for these, for these Alaskan crab. And it's unbelievable. And I remember one show a few weeks ago, the fleet was fishing and a massive storm hit. And there were literally 40 to 50 foot swells that these boats were going through. Down into the valley, up through the wave, cresting. I mean, these huge boats, just like this, all night. It was Unbelievable. There's one captain, Sig Hansen, of the ship Northwestern, and he said, if we can just make it until morning, we'll be okay. And for him to say that was pretty pretty big deal. If you're familiar with the show, Sig Hansen, the guy is carved out of wood. Nothing gets to this guy. And even he was freaked out by the storm and said, if we can just make it till tomorrow, we'll be okay because the storm's going to pass and I can see what's coming at us because right now I can't. And all I can do is stay up all night. He had to stay up all night and jog the boat over these huge waves that he could barely see just to keep the boat upright. It was unbelievable. The dawn brought relief and hope that the storm was passing. Well, as we look at Psalm 130 this morning, Psalms 120 through 135 all start with a unique title, a, Psalm of a, a song of ascents. Maybe you see that in your, in your translation. And this is an original inspired Hebrew text. This is in the Hebrew. This is actually a part of the psalm. It's the title of it, A Song of Ascents. And pilgrims, some people, scholars kind of debate what their actual usage was, but some things that they do kind of commonly agree on in the sense that pilgrims used to sing these songs together on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem several times a year basically moving from the, from the valley below up through the temple mount, up the stairs of the temple themselves. They were songs that they sang as they ascended up towards Jerusalem. This may have been an early hymn book used for the seven major feast days in Israel. And while Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent... Actually, within, it, within its lines, it's only eight verses long, within its lines, it has an ascent in and of itself, which is pretty interesting. It basically moves from spiritual shame and guilt to assurance and redemption in eight verses. It in and of itself ascends as it goes along. There was a 16th century Spanish priest named John of the Cross who wrote a poem called The Dark Night of the Soul. Maybe you know that phrase. That phrase has kind of moved into our vernacular and know we say, like, I'm having a dark night of the soul. It comes from this poem. And this poem describes a feeling of shame, like of spiritual loneliness and desolation. It's, it's a guilt and shame over sin. I'm having this dark, long night of the soul. Maybe we've had one of these this, these anxious moments. Um, where we just are waiting for some relief to come kind of like me huddling in the house waiting for the dawn to come and at some point in our Christian life maybe even now we'll all experience this feeling I mean we feel like sin has us by the throat and we're about to be capsized by a 40 or 50 foot wave we're down in the valley here comes the wave it's going to be bad when will we find some relief when will the dawn come I mean what do we do when we experience a dark night of the soul What are we to do when we feel like a tree is about to drop or has dropped through our spiritual house? Psalm 130 responds in three incredible ways, and these are going to be our points this morning. It says, God is a gracious listener, verses 1 and 2. God is a gracious forgiver, verses 3 and 4. And then finally, God is a gracious redeemer, verses 5 through 8. So those will be our three points this morning. Listener, forgiver, and redeemer if you're taking notes. Well, let's look at point one. God is a gracious listener. I mean, often when we're in anguish, we feel like no one is listening. Think about a time when you have really felt anxious and worried or some trial has come. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we really kind of, that's the point where we really get inward focused and we feel like if only somebody could just understand where I'm coming from. Just nobody knows what I'm talking about. Nobody can really relate to me. We feel like nobody's listening, and the author of the psalm cries out to God from the depths. The Hebrew word that's used here implies water, kind of a water scene. It's used in Isaiah 51 to describe deep water, here I am, the waves, these deep water. And then in Psalm 69, it's used again to describe kind of a deep mire, like a thick bog, like a swamp. And it's also, if you've ever read the book or or, um, have been through a class on the Pilgrim's Progress... The pilgrim, as he's, as he's traveling, he hits the slough of despond. It's this deep, thick, unavoidable bog that he hits and he finds himself entangled in. Literally, the author of this psalm is drowning in his sin and he's crying out to God for help. The raw urgency and honesty in this verse is so tangible because we've all had this experience. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Oh, Lord, I feel like the wave's about to just crush me. I, cr- I need you. I've got nowhere else to go. I need you, Lord. There was a movie that was released last year called 127 Hours. Maybe you saw it. It's an unbelievably intense movie. It's the story of Aaron Ralston who was hiking in the remote canyons in Utah and a boulder fell and basically pinned his arm to the wall of a canyon that was really, really deep. And it's an unbelievably intense movie. I went and actually saw this with some other RUF campus ministers, and one of the guys that I went with passed out. It was so intense, like fainted. It was unreal how just emotionally gripping this thing is. And if you can imagine yourself in Aaron Ralston's shoes, this guy went from, this guy knew these canyons like the back of his hand. And he goes out, he doesn't take hardly anything that he needs. He feels like, I'm just going to go out for a quick little jog, go, go hiking out in these canyons. I'll be back before dinner, no big deal. He goes from cocky self-confidence to sheer desperation in an instant. Here's a guy that knows this place like the back of his hand. The boulder falls, it pins him to, pins him to the wall. He knows he's in big trouble. Suddenly the situation changes and he realizes he is hopelessly stuck in a deep canyon miles from help. He can yell and scream all he wants. Nobody hears him. This is an unbelievably desperate situation. And this really happened. There's a scene in the movie where rainwater fills up the canyon. And you can imagine he's pinned to the bottom here. And rainwater starts filling up, slowly but surely. And he almost dies. This is where the psalmist finds himself, up to his neck in desperation and brokenness. And all he can do is cry out for help. By the work of the Holy Spirit, the mirror of the soul is placed directly in front of him and he has nowhere to hide. The unvarnished truth just grabs him by the face mask and stares him right in the eyes. His response, verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Lord, please hear me. The imperative voice is used here in the Hebrew implying urgency. That's why there's an exclamation point there. Oh Lord, this is a desperate situation. I need you. Please be attentive to the sounds of my cries for mercy. I cannot help myself. I need you. This is bad. The cry for help gives us insight into our own hearts. Because when trouble strikes, we really feel like we're the only ones who are facing problems and that we're really entitled to an answer. But we have to remember that God hears the collective cries for mercy from every corner of creation. As I was thinking about this, I thought about a movie that, not a great movie, but a movie that was released. It was called Bruce Almighty. It had Jim Carrey in it. Maybe you saw it. It wasn't exactly a cinematic masterpiece, but it had a great illustration. And what happens is Jim Carrey's character just is complaining to God all the time. Where are you? What's going on? Boy, you really messed that up. Why did you do it that way? And so God, if you remember the, the, in the movie, Morgan Freeman plays the part of God, and he comes down and says, oh, you think you could do it better? I'm going to give you all of my power for one day. Now you're Bruce Almighty. Well, what happens is Jim Carrey starts hearing a voice. Bruce starts hearing a voice in his head, and it's basically all people's prayers and cries out for, for help. And it gets so intense for him that he basically says, I, okay, enough of this. I'm going to set up all of these in like an, an email system. So poof, a computer appears, and then all of a sudden his inbox just fills up. And it's all of these people's prayer and te- prayers in text form. So he starts reading them, and he starts responding back. And he gets, to, he gets through maybe 10 or 12 kind of writing a specific response, and he just says, you know what? This is getting old. He, he highlights them all, clicks reply all, and types yes, and hits send. <laughs> absolute chaos breaks out because everybody gets their prayers answered like this. There's no thought, there's no response. He says, give them what they want, boom, and then chaos breaks out. And we laugh at that, but I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would really do the same thing. I mean, we're impatient with our own family and friends, much less what other people need. But thankfully, God does not respond like us The psalmist cries out for help and he finds that God is a gracious listener. One thing you can take great hope in this morning is that God is not dead. He's not out to lunch. He's not kicked back in the lazy boy, just oblivious to everything that's going on around him. God is actively moving and working. He hears our cries. He knows us. He is alive and working his sovereign plan for his good and for his glory. And that gives us great hope. I mean, this is amazing. God could have ignored us because we've sinned against him and are guilty. I mean, it could have been one of these things where, oh, Lord, please hear me, please hear my pleas for mercy. And he says, no, no, you blew it. It's over. Ball game. Checkmate. It's over. I mean, we deserve to be left alone in the canyon, pinned to the wall with no one to hear us because of our sin. But God does hear us, and He does respond. And that gives us great hope and gives this psalmist hope as we move through these verses. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. As I was reading various commentaries, I came across, I read Matthew Henry's, and he had a great little quote that I thought just really summed this up. He said, Jeremiah's out of the dungeon, Daniel's out of the den, And Jonah is out of the fish's belly. God hears, and he knows, and he works. He's not out to lunch. He's not dead. He hears us. God graciously listens to the cries of needy sinners. And as the psalmist continues to think about his plight here in the psalm, he finds that God is a gracious forgiver. Point two. Let's look at verse three again said, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That is a scary verse. The psalmist continues to feel the weight of his sin. He says, if you should mark iniquities, the NIV, if you have that, if you kept a record of sins, is the way that, the way that it describes it, translates it. It's the image of like a ledger or a grade book or a slate. And there's a mark for every offense against God. Oh, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, if you actually wrote them down and showed it to me, who could stand before you? Notice the psalmist is not crying out, not guilty in the courtroom. He's not saying, I, it's not me. He's saying, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? He knows his ledger is full of marks. He knows that his grade book has straight F's. He is in deep, deep trouble when when faced with the almighty, holy God of the universe. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? He knows he's guilty and he knows he deserves wrath. Even the folks that have sung and read this psalm for centuries know that this is true about themselves. We are guilty and we stand condemned before an almighty God. We have a big sin problem and we can't fix it. Psalm 130 reminds us yet again of God's holiness and our utter depravity. Sin has us by the throat, we are condemned. And when faced with this prospect, even the most calloused heart echoes the cry of the psalmist, who could stand before you? However, we forget our own plight before an almighty God. Our hearts are calloused. We think we're pretty good people. And when we give ourselves a little pat on the back when we've been really patient with somebody and we really feel like, boy, I made some good strides today. Like I I haven't yelled at my kid again. Like my three-year-old is driving me crazy and I showed him a little bit of grace. Boy, I'm so good. Or maybe that coworker who's just driving you insane and you show them a little bit of mercy and you're like, I'm doing pretty good today. We forget how patient God is with us We forget that it took nothing less than the death of God's perfect Son to redeem us. That is what it took. The death of Jesus. The most perfect man who's ever lived. The Son of God. It took nothing less than that to redeem us. But just as we're about to be overtaken by the rising water, verse 4 reminds us of God's gracious forgiveness. Let's read that again. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. What a God, what a promise, what a gospel. If you could mark iniquities, who could stand before you? You're so holy, but you, O Lord, with you, there is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is real help. In verse 3, we hit the dark ocean floor. But in verse 4, the life raft deploys and we begin to make our rapid ascent up towards the surface. The anchor is broken. We cling to Jesus. Out of the depths, we come to meet God. I want to do a sermon series one day entitled, God Has a Big Butt with One T, Not Two. Because there are unbelievable passages in the Bible that hinge on God's grace that are often denoted in the scripture by using the word but. I mean, think about right here in this own psalm. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand before you? But, but, with you there's forgiveness that you might be feared. There's a great example in Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. Maybe you're familiar with this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And once you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verses 1 through 3, Paul is just laying it on us. You are children of disobedience. You are wicked. Then look what happens in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen and amen. I am so thankful for the word but in the scriptures. This is why the gospel is such good news for us. If you're familiar, there's a band named the Avett Brothers, and they have this song called Shame. And basically, the chorus of the song repeats itself over and over again. And it says, shame, boatloads of shame. Day after day, more of the same. Shame and guilt. That's us. That's our hearts. We feel it. We're shame-filled, broken people. But we find undeserved grace and forgiveness with God. The psalmist in this passage owns his sin and he earnestly repents of it. He's not crying not guilty. He said, I cannot stand before you. I'm guilty. But with you, there's forgiveness. God responds by taking the mark-covered slate of sin and breaking it at the foot of the cross. We've all got the, the grade book full of F's. We've all got the slate that is covered with so many marks against God. We could never, never, never atone for ourselves. And what does God do? Take the slates of a bunch of broken people and break them at the foot of the cross. And puts all of that punishment on Jesus. Not us. That is why the gospel is good news. That is why it changes our lives. However, the last phrase of verse 4 reminds us of the greater purpose of God. Notice it says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This word implies reverence, honor, and esteem. And one thing I want us to notice this morning is that it doesn't read so that you might be taken for granted. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you might be feared, that you might be honored and esteemed and respected. Not that you might be taken for granted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has an amazing illustration in his book, um, The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about cheap grace, and that a lot of times we take and we forget that it really took nothing less than the death of Jesus to atone and redeem us. And we wipe that away, and it just becomes cheap grace, that God just waved his hand and it just happened. We forget that somebody had to die in our place. The result of this grace that we have been shown, this, the result of the price that it took to buy us back from the weight of sin leads us to worship. We gather together on Sunday morning as a bunch of redeemed people. Are we broken? Yes. Do we all have problems? Yes. Do we all have secret sins and things that we hide onto? Yes, but we're redeemed in Jesus. And that gives us hope. That's what brings us back here. We look around and we're sitting shoulder to shoulder with people Who have the exact same problem that we have, a capital S sin problem, but a capital S savior? Some would argue that, well, this worship that comes about, God's just a vain, selfish egomaniac. But what would you rather worship? Yourselves? What do you possibly bring to the table? This reverent fear and honor is well placed upon the God who graciously saved you from the depths of sin by freely offering up his own son that you might be redeemed. I don't know about you. I don't think it's egomania. It's unbelievable grace and love. And if God gets all the credit for that, I'm okay with that. The life raft has deployed. The psalmist is thrust upward. And then the surface of the water breaks And redemption is found in the psalm. Notice we're moving from shame and guilt to redemption in eight verses. We're ascending, as it were. The dark night of the soul is over, as the psalmist is reminded. So we look at point three. God is a gracious redeemer. He's a gracious listener. He's a gracious forgiver. Now he's a gracious redeemer. There's a great hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Maybe you know it. says, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. On thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Great hymn. Let's read verses 5 and 6 together. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. There's two names for God that are used in these verses, Yahweh and Adonai. And the, and the psalmist goes back and forth as he uses them. We see Yahweh, this covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And then Adonai, Lord, Master, Ruler. So your covenant faithfulness, your, your covenant redeemer, and then my Lord and my Master and my King. These two words. Verse 5 reads, I wait for the Lord. I wait for you, Yahweh. My, whole, my soul, which that word means my whole being, my guts, my everything, waits for you, Yahweh. What gives the psalmist hope here? The covenant promises of a covenant God in his covenant word to us. That's what gives the psalmist hope, that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who will never back down from the promises he've made. And he loves us so much that he's given us his word. That's what gives him hope here in this passage. is unbelievable. How often do we put our trust in ourselves instead of Yahweh, instead of this covenant-making and keeping God? I do it all the time because I'm weak and foolish. And I forget that God has made these unbelievable promises. And I just look at myself and I turn inwardly and I stare at my at my navel and I say, oh, woe is me. Psalm 40, verse two, we read verse one earlier, but here's the second half says he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Then the psalm continues, Psalm 42, in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. Let's look back at verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. So says, my soul waits for the Lord. The, the word that's used there is Adonai, my ruler. My, my soul waits for the king. Think back to the longest night you've ever experienced. What did you never have to doubt? The sun was going to come up. Morning was going to come. You never doubted that. You just knew if you could just make it through the night, the sun's going to come up then I can actually see this freight train that's about to hit me. This this long night of the soul will come to an end because the sun's going to come up. You never had to doubt that. I mean, we take it for granted. Many of us hate the morning. (laughs) You know, the sun comes in, you're like, ugh, this is awful. But the psalmist didn't. His entire being strained to see the first glimmer of light because it brought relief and an end to the anxious wondering as he was wondering what was lurking in the night. Is this wave going to take me over? Is this tree going to fall through my house? Is this whole thing going to come crashing down? I'm straining to see the first glimpses of light, and he never doubted that the morning was coming, ever. The king has come, and he sits on his throne. In Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus is called what? The bright morning star. We've moved in this psalm from the dark soul of the night to the bright morning star. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every what? Morning. Great is your faithfulness. This psalm has moved from shame to redemption, just as the whole Bible moves from shame to redemption. Genesis 3, the fall into sin and darkness, I often tell students as we look at our Bible, if you actually opened up your Bible and you flip past the table of contents and all the little notes that nobody but seminary professors and you know, pastors read, like the author's preface and all this kind of stuff, if you flip past it and you actually get to Genesis 1, you will realize that in your Bible, humanity makes it maybe a page and a half, two if you have a large print. That's how far we make it. Two pages in the Bible. And humanity has blown it. That would be one short Bible. How would you like it if you walked in and said, Hey, welcome, you're a Christian. Here's a one-page Bible. (laughs) It doesn't, though. We blow it in the first page and a half. And what's the rest of the Bible? From guilt and shame to redemption in Jesus. From the dark night of the soul, we blew it. Page one, last page of the Bible, the bright morning star is here. The king has come. Redemption. Not because you were great. Not because you were smart, because I love you, and I want to show you grace. This causes the psalmist again to use the imperative voice, if you notice. Look at verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord! Exclamation point. Now it is a cry of trust. We move from a cry of, O Lord, hear me, to a cry of trust. O Israel, hope in Yahweh. Hope in the covenant-keeping and covenant-making God. Hope in Yahweh. Why? The second half of verse 7. For with the Lord, for with Yahweh, there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. With a covenant God comes covenant love. And this love is plentiful and it gives us hope. The covenant love is plentiful, but it's also effectual. Look at verse 8. The thing I want us to realize about verse 7 is the word that's used there, for, the, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. That is covenant faithfulness. hesed love. Never ending, never going away, always and forever love. This is my steadfast Covenant love, because I'm a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and I love you, and that's never going to change. And with the Lord comes plentiful redemption and steadfast love. Now let's move to verse 8. I promise we're landing the plane. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This word redeem also means ransom. He will ransom Israel from all his iniquity. This gives the psalmist confidence and assurance Ephesians 2, Jew and Gentile united under Christ as one body. The promises to Israel in verse 8 that we read here are our promises as well. Christ came and he died to redeem his bride, the church. And he will redeem the church. He will redeem you and me from all iniquity. That's what that passage is saying. This is unbelievable. That God would take a look at a bunch of broken people that give him nothing. It's not like he was running low on, like, God juice and needed you to come in and help him. So Completely self-sufficient in and of himself. And he looks at you and says, I love you. I love you. I know you're broken and I want to put you back together again. I know you blew it in page two of the Bible. I'm going to be with you through the rest of the Bible and on into eternity because I love you. As we conclude, we see that God is truly a gracious listener, a gracious forgiver, and a gracious redeemer. And I don't know about you, but that gives me so much hope and encouragement. I'm so thankful. God heard our cries for mercy and he sent Jesus. And because of Christ, we're forgiven and we can once again stand in his presence God sent Jesus to seek and reclaim lost sinners like us, and because of him and him alone, not because you're so smart and you've got it all together, but simply because of Jesus and by grace we've been redeemed. Jesus has ransomed. He's purchased us back from the grave by enduring the agony of the cross. Think about when I was huddling in my house, just waiting for that hemlock tree to come through my living room. The tree didn't fall on us because it fell on him. He took the tree right on him that we deserved. Now the morning has come and we have hope. We move from the dark night of the soul to the bright morning star. Jesus endured the darkest night of the soul that you could ever imagine. So that he could be our bright morning star. And that gives us great hope. May we be like the watchmen in the psalm who wait for the morning, who strain to see this bright morning star. Did you notice it's repeated twice? It's there for emphasis. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning, I strain to see this Jesus, this bright morning star, who with the morning comes redemption, hope, forgiveness, trust, and assurance. May we be like those watchmen who strain to see him. Let's pray together.